of late, nearly everyone has been thinking about cancel culture. Uh, comedians, Christians, coaches, school counselors have been thinking about cancel culture. Even on one of our local radio stations, the, uh, the round mound of rebound, Sir Charles Barkley, has been thinking about cancel culture. The NBA Hall of Famer uh, is thinking about leaving sports casting in the next few years, and cancel culture has played a role in his thinking through early retirement. And if you're not up to speed on cancel culture, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, cancel culture is, quote, a way of behaving in a society or a group, especially on social media, in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because they have said or done something that offends. The reality is, is that cancel culture or canceling can happen not only in the public sphere, like social media, but even in private life, right? Friends and family can cancel you through avoidance, through ghosting, not returning your phone calls, texts, or emails. Uh, contrary to Charles Barkley's assertion in his interview, uh, cancel culture hasn't emerged in the last year and a half or so. Cancel culture has been around for quite some time. It's, a, it's not a bug, it's a feature of our society. Because eventually, everyone is offended by something or someone and we're all tempted to tune someone out. Most of us though, if we're honest with ourselves, we are afraid of being canceled. We're afraid of losing the good opinion of others around us. We're afraid of losing our, our reputations. We're afraid of losing relationships. We're afraid of losing remuneration that we use to feed ourselves or to feed our family. This should set us to wonder, what would it look like to live unafraid of being canceled? What would it look like to live unafraid of being canceled? Well, this morning as we turn to study God's word, we meet a man named Stephen who is on the verge of being canceled for the things that he said about Jesus and the things that he did for Jesus. Stephen shows us what it looks like to live unafraid of being canceled for Jesus. Stephen shows us that it is good and right to risk being canceled for Jesus. Because in truth, Jesus was canceled unto death for us and for our salvation. And this morning, as we study God's word together, I pray that we would see what Stephen saw. That serving like Jesus, speaking about Jesus, and suffering for Jesus is worth the risk of being canceled. In living on the edge of being canceled for Jesus, we gain far more than we could ever lose. In living on the edge of being canceled for Jesus, we live in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings and are prepared for glory with Him. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 15 together this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, you should be able to find the passage on page 914. This morning, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We, we need to remember Luke's claim and aim for this book. Luke's claim is found really in the first verse of the book itself. He, he writes in Acts chapter 1 verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. That was his first volume, and this is his second volume. Part of his claim is that this is his second volume concerning the work that Jesus is doing. And in this volume, Luke is chronicling especially what Jesus is doing in and through his disciples as the Holy Spirit is empowering them to carry his message 
to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus sets the agenda for his disciples. And it's really the agenda for the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You see, the, the book of Acts is chronicling the, the journey of the message about Jesus and his messengers from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the first six chapters of the book of Acts, we've been looking at this message being shared in Jerusalem. And today, we, we meet the beginning of the event that is a catalyst for sending the gospel, the message about Jesus, outside of Jerusalem and on its way to the ends of the earth. In our text today, a man named Stephen, he takes center stage. Well, almost center stage, because Jesus is really at the center stage of everything in the book of Acts. Stephen is really what we'll see, a compelling picture of Jesus Christ. We see his character. We see Jesus in his conflict. We see Jesus in his countenance. We see Jesus in Stephen. In Stephen's trial, we, we remember Jesus' trial. And as we look at Stephen, we're, we're reminded that disciples are not greater than their master. We're reminded that they, they walk in the way in which their master walked. As disciples serve like their master and speak about their master, they may suffer like their master. But disciples will also enter into the shining glory of their master. As I read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, see if you can spot some sketches of Stephen's character. Look for how he served like Jesus. I'm sure you won't be able to miss the, the conflict that's going to emerge in these verses as thrust upon Stephen. As we look at this conflict that he's engaged in, ask yourself if this reminds you of Jesus. And as the reading comes, comes to a close, consider Stephen's countenance. Ask yourself, how can Stephen exhibit such peace when the men who are holding him want nothing but war? As I read, follow along now in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Acts chapter 6, beginning there in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Amen. And whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Friends, brothers and sisters, we're going to look at this text in three sections under three headings. Under three headings, in verses 8 to 10, we'll examine Stephen's character. And then in verses 11 to 14, we'll examine Stephen's conflict. And then in verse 15, we'll examine Stephen's countenance. Stephen's character, Stephen's conflict, and Stephen's countenance. 
let's first take a look at Stephen's character. And here, we're looking especially at verses 8 to 10. If you scan your eyes across these verses, you will see that Stephen is a remarkable man. He is full of grace. Don't you want that to be a descriptor of your life? Don't you want to be known to others as one who is full of grace? Now, Stephen was full of grace because he embraced the Savior who we learn in John's Gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Stephen is a man full of grace because he's received grace from God. He's been pardoned of his sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness that Jesus Christ has imputed to him. And he's received that by God's grace alone. Stephen is a man who's full of grace because God has been generous to set his favor upon him. Stephen's full of grace. He's full of power too. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in his life. And we know that from what we actually learned about Stephen earlier in Acts chapter 6. You'll, you'll remember the first part of Acts chapter 6 is about this, this situation in the church where the, some widows are being overlooked in the, distrib- the distribution of food. And the apostles say, let's, let's appoint seven men with good character who can care for these widows. So if you look at Acts chapter 6 verse 3, the apostles say, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, so they have a good reputation among the church and among the people generally, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And if you skip down to verse 5, you see that Stephen is one of those men. Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's probably just another way of saying that he's full of grace and power. He's a mature and growing Christian. And the church in Jerusalem recognizes it. But Stephen is full of power in another way too, isn't he? You see, he's full of power in that he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. In, in the book of Acts and really in the New Testament, this language of wonders and signs, it, it's language of, of doing miracles. And so far in the book of Acts, it's only been the apostles who have, those, who have been those who have been doing miracles. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, we're told, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Stephen is doing something that up to this point in this book, only the apostles have been doing. So he's, he's pretty unique in that sense. He's, he's an exception. And what an amazing combination, these words here, right? Grace and power, and in one man. Uh, This should remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He was full of grace and power. Think about those who He would come upon, who were physically ailing and in need. Uh, Think about the, the man who was paralyzed, who He said, your sins are forgiven. Full of grace toward that man, in forgiving his sins, and yet full of power, saying, take up your bed and walk. Jesus full of grace and power. And Stephen is a living picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a mirror of the Savior. And he serves like the Savior. He serves among the widows, among a community who could not help themselves, a vulnerable community. Here he is, bringing them bread, bringing them food, helping those who could not help themselves. That's just what Jesus did, wasn't it? We need to stop and remember as we are awed, appropriately, rightly, by Stephen's signs and wonders, these miracles, 
But we need to pause and remember the, the purpose of signs in the Bibles. Why was it that Jesus performed miracles? Why was it that we see people in Acts performing miracles? Jesus never did signs for show. The purpose of signs were, were always to verify that He was who He said He was. He was God's Messiah and the Savior who was promised and who was to come. And as Stephen does these signs, these signs are given to verify that the message he proclaims about Jesus is true. That Jesus really is the Savior of the world. That's the purpose of signs. What they show is that Jesus is the Savior. And that's what's going to happen in the book of Acts. Every new place that the gospel is advanced and go to, goes to, a new place that hasn't heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, signs are given there to show that this message that has come to this community is to be believed and that it's from God. That's what the purpose of signs are in the Bible. Stephen's signs, they ultimately point back to Jesus. We, we probably shouldn't expect to see signs like these emerging in our lives. But there is a way, Jesus has taught us, that we can show the world that we belong to Him, that we're His servants. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, that all men will know that we are Jesus' disciples by the love that we have for one another. Christian, our love is an evangelistic witness to the watching world. It was an evangelistic witness in, in Stephen's case, wasn't it? Stephen went and cared for these widows in his congregation. And conversations, discussions, disputes even, rose up. Stephen lived a life that provoked others to ask questions. Why are you doing this? Why, why are you different? Why are you loving these who are not like you? Brothers and sisters, let's, let's think about how we can live lives that provoke, lovingly provoke, our, our neighbors and our, our friends, family members, our, our co-workers. Maybe you're leaving work early someday. Wait, why, why are you going to take this older saint to the doctor's office? Why, why, why are you bringing a meal to this woman who has just had a, a baby in your church? Would you tell me about that? Let's live lives. Let's serve God's people in such a way that provokes them to ask about our faith, just like Stephen did. And Stephen, he, he obviously provoked these, these men uh, who were a part of this synagogue or synagogues. Maybe there's a, a, a couple different ones here. And these men, they're, they're from all different places around the, the known world. There, there are some who are freedmen, those who had either earned their, their freedom from slavery or purchased it. Um, there, there are some from, from different places around the known world. And, and these men are, are, are actually Jews. They're, they're part of the synagogue. And in that sense, they're, they're like Stephen. Stephen himself has a, a Hellenistic background. He's from one of these backgrounds, like, like these men. These men were a part of the community that after the exile were scattered. That's why they were from these different places. But they, for love of the Lord Yahweh, have returned to Jerusalem. For that's where God's temple is. That's where worship takes place. So these are, are men who are zealous for the worship of God. And Stephen has that opportunity, probably through his involvement in one of these synagogues, to have conversations with these men. They're, they're, they're interested in what he's about. Synagogues were, were places of, of, of worship. They were places where community issues were discussed. They were places where gifts were brought so that needs could be distributed to the poor. And, and here Stephen is giving a witness that, hey, we're, we're not the only ones who, who do this kind of thing. Stephen's giving a witness to the 
the truth that Jesus is the Savior who serves. And so these men are asking him questions. Now, one of the places that Luke mentions in here in this list of synagogues, I think is tantalizing. You'll see there, there's this place called uh, Cilicia there. Cilicia has a prominent city named Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, in just a couple of chapters, is going to be standing and watching Stephen being stoned. And you almost have to wonder if these men that Stephen are discussing with, debating with, if the Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is among them. And, and notice, notice that they can't best Stephen in debate. It's interesting to think maybe the Apostle Paul couldn't best Stephen in debate. And, and why not? Well, because he's speaking with the authority of God. They, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This really should remind us of, of Moses. Do you remember what Moses said when God said, Moses, you're going to go and free my people. And Moses said, I, like, I, I can't really talk. And, and the Lord said to Moses, that's no problem. You're basically going to be my mouthpiece, okay? He says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Stephen, he, he speaks even like Jesus promised his disciples would. So in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 15, Jesus told his disciples, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So what we're seeing here in Acts is, is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Luke. And in fact, when you think about how Stephen is speaking here, his unstoppable speech, he's speaking exactly like the Lord Jesus spoke, isn't he? Right? After Jesus taught, people were always saying, "Is what is this teaching? And with authority. And one time after Jesus was done speaking in John chapter 7, verse 46, one of the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And then in, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus had proved his case from the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, this is what was said. And no one was able to answer him a word. Yes, the description of Stephen being filled with wisdom and the Spirit as he speaks, it ought to remind us of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, would later say that Jesus is wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And Jesus, of course, was the one who was supremely endowed with the Spirit. You remember what Jesus said in his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4? Jesus quoted from the scroll of Isaiah, saying about himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Friends, brothers and sisters, from beginning to end, Stephen's character reminds us of the Lord Jesus as he serves like Jesus. He serves the poor and needy widows who could give nothing in return. And isn't that how Jesus has served us? There's nothing in our hands that we could bring to give and earn God's approval and favor. No, Jesus had to give it all, and He served us. In a certain sense, it's, it's right for us to think of Stephen as an extraordinary man. Right? We think of his miracles, his signs and wonders. But Stephen is also an example to us. We, we shouldn't just write Stephen off and say, you know, he's so amazing, I can be nothing like him. No, Luke presents him to us as an example and model for us as he shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't it Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ? Well, that's true as well for Stephen. We should follow in Stephen's ways. He's following after Jesus' way. We, we probably won't have signs and wonders in our personal ministries, but we can serve like him. 
we can speak about Jesus like him. Brothers and sisters, let us learn the way of Jesus from Stephen. Let's be mindful that service marked his life. So much of our lives is spent by consuming and taking. How much more of our lives needs to be spent serving and giving? Remember all that Christ has given to you in his life, his death, his resurrection. And from a heart of gratitude, purpose to serve like Stephen, really like Jesus. You know, when this service, when our worship service comes to an end, stick around. Talk with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Talk about, brainstorm ideas about how you might be able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of His church. Having considered Stephen's character and how he serves like the Lord Jesus, let's turn now and consider Stephen's conflict. The disputes, the discussions, and those words in the text, uh, the debate's not really heated at that point. Verse 11 is a, is a turning point in the debate. They were measured for a time, but at some point, a line was crossed in the minds of Stephen's hearers. And so, a conflict arose. So let's look at Stephen's conflict. Let's read again Acts chapter 6. Read verses 11 to 14. Then... They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You know, Stephen's conflict revolved around how he spoke about Jesus of Nazareth. And you, you can tell they have a disdain for Jesus of Nazareth. You see there, they, they say, this Jesus of Nazareth. There's a real disdain for Christ here. But notice that every conflict in the book of Acts is really about Jesus Christ. This is now the third time a disciple of Jesus has been hauled in before the Jewish authorities for how they speak about Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the council for declaring that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. And then they were threatened and released. A chapter later, in Acts chapter 5, all 12 of the apostles were arrested. In verse 40 of Acts chapter 5, we're told that they were beaten. They were charged not to speak in the name of of Jesus. And Stephen, he is now walking the same course as the apostles before him. And I'm guessing that Stephen wasn't surprised by this situation. Jesus taught his disciples that this kind of thing would happen. And I want you to see this for yourself. So I want you to, to keep one, pat, one finger in Acts chapter 6, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Turn to Luke chapter 21, especially verses 12 to 16. Uh, you should find that on page 881, I think, of the Bibles provided. And, and when you get there, and we read these verses, verses 12 to 16, I want you to see that Jesus promised that the treatment that the apostles endured and that Stephen is now enduring is exactly what Jesus promised. Jesus was a, a true prophet in that sense. Verse 12 of Luke chapter 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And that's what Stephen's going to do in chapter 7. Jesus keeps going. Sorry, verse 14. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how, you, how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. That's going to be Stephen's end. He's going to be put to death. And he's being delivered up, really, by relatives. These are fellow Jews who are hauling Stephen in before this council. The apostles and Stephen in the early Christian church, they were in, enduring exactly what Jesus said. Go ahead and, and turn back to, to Acts chapter 6. Because I want you to be wide-eyed about the fact that when the ungodly want to oppose the message of Jesus... They may do so over and over and over again. Right? This is the third time in the book of Acts. This is now the third time. And this is going to continue in the book of Acts. In, in our day, uh, there, there are pastors in Canada who have been arrested on multiple occasions in the last few months for gathering God's people for worship as God commands. Uh, Jack Phillips, many of you may know that name, a baker from Colorado, has been legally harassed for the better part of 10 years because he refuses to use his talents as a baker to make cakes that he believes are, are contrary to the written word of God. In other words, he refuses to use his skills to celebrate sin. When unbelievers, or the world, and the devil are really committed to suppressing the spread of the gospel, then it is likely that Christians and Christian churches will be opposed again and again and again. And we should be wide-eyed about that. It should not come as a surprise to us. And we should know that things are escalating quickly for Stephen. In verse 9, we're told that men rose up. In verse 12, we're told that the people were stirred up. And in verse 13, we're told that false witnesses were set up. Right? Stephen, he is in the council's crosshairs. More than that, he is in the council's cuffs. Right? In verse 12, tells us that the crowd came upon him. They seized him or arrested him and brought him to the council. And all of this has happened, really, with the implication that it's been happening by force. I want you to note something, brothers and sisters. You can be winsome and gracious. One Christian said, you can be like Mr. Rogers. Right? Your, your words can be meticulous and measured. Your deeds can be a clear blessing to the broader society and to your neighbors. Right? Stephen was serving widows. They can be a clear blessing to everyone with eyes to see. But that doesn't mean you will escape conflict. What it does mean is that your content should be about Jesus and the teaching of the Bible. That was clearly the case for Stephen. And this may someday be the case for you or for our church. Crowds can easily be stirred up and words can be easily misrepresented. This is Washington, D.C. This is what we do. We're, we're gifted at this kind of thing, the secret whisper campaigns. They emerged all over our town. How many crowds have you seen stirred up? And both the political left and the political right do these things. They play these games. Brothers and sisters, be careful about whisper campaigns. Children and young people, let, let me encourage you to be aware of, of secrets. The fact that somebody is trying to hide something should be a signal to you, children, that, that maybe what they're trying to say does not want to be brought out into the light. 
So just have this category in your mind that, that secrets, maybe it's possible that they're not always healthy and good. Maybe not something that you should be seeking or maybe even wanting to have. We should be mindful of these things. We should also be careful that we're not carried along by the crowd or with the crowd. Very often we ought to let time prayerfully pass. Let the dust settle, not get carried along before coming to conclusions. It's easy to get swept up in the fervor of something. And the consequences, they can be serious. Just look at Stephen's case. Look at the charge that Stephen is facing. He's facing the charge of blasphemy. Now, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, listen to what it says about blasphemy. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. This is what will happen to Stephen. The charge of blasphemy is based upon two accusations. That Stephen is speaking against Moses and God. Or as verse 14 restates them, they are against this holy place and against the law. And I think that's just the same way of saying, well, saying the same thing two different ways. Right? To speak against the law would be to speak against Moses. Moses is the one who gave the law. Right? To speak against this holy place, which uh, they mean that the temple there, would be to speak against God. Right? God's dwelling place is in the temple. It's the temple of the Lord Yahweh. So they're saying that Stephen is speaking against Moses, the law, and the temple of God. Now, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they, they may have had a larger category in mind when they're thinking about speaking against Moses. You notice they, they speak about, talk about the, the customs of Moses. They may have had in mind the kind of extra-biblical practices that had been set up to help them uh, keep from breaking the law of Moses. Uh, they, they may have that in mind as well. Whatever the case may be, there is a debate going on, a conflict going on between Stephen uh, and, and this council. And we should maybe stop and think, or at least ask ourselves the question, why should I care about the nuances of this theological debate about the, the law of Moses and the, the temple? Well, one of the reasons that we should care is because Stephen, notice that he's prepared to die and would die for what he proclaimed about these matters. And, and another reason is this, because what Stephen proclaimed in this theological debate is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Your eternal soul hangs in the balance in this debate. What you believe about Jesus and his relationship to the temple and the law places your soul in the eternal balance. What you believe about Jesus, about who he is, and what he came to do matters, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. So let's just get a few things clear about what Jesus taught about the temple and therefore what Stephen taught about Jesus concerning the temple. First, Jesus did address the destruction of the temple in his teaching. In his Olivet Discourse, especially in Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 and 2, Jesus did say that the temple was going to be destroyed. Now he didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said that the temple would be destroyed. There would be judgment on the temple for the Jews' rejection of Jesus as God's Messiah. And in the course of time, in 70 AD, the Romans would overrun Jerusalem and destroy the temple. 
But Jesus said other things about the temple as well. And this next one, I especially also want you to set your eyes on in the Bible itself. Turn, keep one finger here if you can, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 to 22. And that's on page 887 of the Bibles provided. When you get there, you'll notice that Jesus has been in the temple. He's cleared the temple. And the Jews come to him in a huff, asking him, what gives you the authority to do these kinds of things? And look at how Jesus answers them, beginning there in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, along with the other gospels, John's gospel shows us that Jesus knew his end. Right? Jesus knew that he had come to earth to die in the place of sinners. This is what it would mean for his body, the temple of his body, to be destroyed. He would be beaten. He would bleed. He would be crowned with thorns. Nails would pierce his hands and feet as he was fastened to a Roman cross. He would suffocate. And he would die. Under this destruction, he would physically die. The destruction of his body and death was not the only thing in the future. The temple of his body would not only be destroyed, but he raised again in three days. Jesus knew that he would physically get up from the dead. Right? John is showing us. John made sure to emphasize in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking about his own body. Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. The temple of his body was raised. But what does this have to do with that physical temple? Are Jesus and his, his conversation partners just talking past each other? Well, maybe just a little bit. But Jesus is certainly addressing their question. What does this have to do, the, the physical temple, have to do with the temple of Jesus' body? Quite simply this. The physical temple in Jerusalem is no longer needed because Jesus has offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It was no longer the place where God meets with His people or where sins are atoned for. Jesus is the place. He's the person with whom we meet with God. It's no longer the place where that, that takes place. This has happened in Jesus. I so appreciate um, Dr. John Piper's words, his reflection on this subject. He, he writes this, Jesus meant, when I die, the temple dies. When I am destroyed, the temple is destroyed. This whole system, all these sacrifices, all this blood flowing to make atonement for sins, all this priestly activity surrounding the holy place where God's presence dwells, it all ends when I die. You destroy me, and in dying, I destroy the temple. I think Dr. Piper is right. Turning back to, to Acts chapter 6, if you would. Do you see how Stephen's teaching about Jesus could be perceived as being against the temple and the law? Stephen, you can imagine his, his debaters saying, Stephen, if, if you are saying 
that we don't have to go to the temple anymore to receive the forgiveness of our sins through offering these sacrifices, then the very purpose of the temple, Stephen, is destroyed. It's actually right. In Jesus, all of God's purposes for the temple have reached their end and goal. That's why there's never, again, going to be a need for a temple in Jerusalem. The, The final sacrifice for sins has been offered. That's what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews said. He said, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus took a seat because it was finished. It was accomplished. No more sacrifices were needed. And when you don't need any more sacrifices, you don't need a temple. When Jesus was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, the end and goal of the temple had been accomplished. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he did so as one who was perfectly righteous, keeping every aspect of the law for us and for our salvation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to bring the law to its telos and goal. Stephen wasn't speaking against the temple or against the law. He was speaking about God's purposes for the temple and the law being accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. And with respect to the law, it would mean that our relationship to the law would be transformed in significant ways. For for example, circumcision would no longer be required for God's people. Now what takes place because of the initiation and the inauguration of the new covenant, circumcision of the heart takes place as the Holy Spirit changes us from within and draws us into the Lord Jesus Christ. But no longer is the physical sign of circumcision required for God's people. Yes, Jesus' work it transforms our relationship to the law in significant ways. Jesus, as God's Messiah in His life, death, and resurrection, had brought some radical changes to the customs of Moses. But they weren't contrary to the customs of Moses. Remember, Moses, he, he talked about, even in his law, how he wanted all of God's people to be circumcised in heart. Moses had in view the new covenant, even as he was writing, being a part as an author of writing the old covenant. Remember, Jesus himself said this. Jesus said that Moses wrote of him. So in John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. See, embedded in the old covenant itself, in its systems of law and, and temple, Embedded in the Old Covenant itself was the fact that there was coming a new covenant sealed in the Savior's blood. So so what does this mean for you? Where where do you land on this side of the debate? Are are you going to try and keep God's law or even a law that you make up and create and try to live according to? Friends, that's that's not how God receives sinners. There's not enough goodness in us. There's not enough righteousness in us. There's not enough law we can keep. We have all sinned and rebelled against God. It's why we have to look to Jesus and trust in Him, the one who kept the law 
perfectly for us, personally for us, and perpetually for us. We have not enough good works. There's nothing that we can do to be saved. As long as you are offering all of your sacrifices, all of your own religious duties to God in the hopes of your salvation, then you are rejecting the sacrifice and law-keeping that Jesus has offered on behalf of sinners. Friend, I urge you today to see in Jesus what Stephen saw. Would you see that on the cross, Jesus took your sins and your sorrows and He made them His very own. That He bore your burden, an eternal burden, the eternal curse of God upon your sin. That he bore it to Calvary. And that He suffered and died for you. Friend, turn from your sins and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And believing on Jesus, you see that His resurrection proves that you will be accepted by God because of what Jesus has done for you. You will be accepted and received into glory just as Jesus was accepted and received into glory. Friends, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe that He's offered the final sacrifice. No more sacrifices are required for your sin. Jesus has paid it all. And all to Him we owe. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's give ourselves to this wonderful, kind, and compassionate Savior. You know, in his conflict, Stephen was up against false witnesses. We, we've seen that here, right? He's up against false witnesses who were speaking contrary to the revealed truth of God in the Old Testament and in Jesus Christ. They were false witnesses in the sense that they were twisting Stephen's words and they were probably a lot like the false witnesses that turned up at Jesus' own trial. In Mark chapter 14, verse 56, we're told about Jesus' trial. Mark writes, For many bore false witness against Him, but their testimony did not agree. Many were likely coming forward to testify against Stephen, but it's, it's likely that their testimony didn't agree. He said this. No, no, no. I, I think he said that. There's this conflict. It's revealing that they are false witnesses. And in this process, they are violating the ninth commandment, the law of Moses. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How ironic, right, that these champions of the law of Moses were violating the law of Moses. They were violating the, the ninth commandment so that they could violate the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. They wanted to put him to death. Stephen, he is following in the way of his master, in the way of Jesus. He debated like Jesus. He was seized like Jesus. He was charged with blasphemy like Jesus, put on trial like Jesus, and faced false witnesses like Jesus. As Christians, we need to grasp that this too may be our course. We likely won't be charged with blasphemy against Judaism like Stephen but we may be charged with blasphemy against the prevailing religion of secularism. Whereas Judaism dominated Stephen's environment, secularism, I think, dominates ours. And we would be naive to not realize that it's actually a religion. How do you blaspheme the religion of secularism? Well, we, we might be charged with blasphemy by speaking against the law of self and the authority of the feelings. We... Um, Charged with blasphemy because we fail to use the appropriate personally approved pronouns. Right? That's the law of self and the feelings ruling and enforcing. We might be charged with blasphemy by speaking against the temple of sexual freedom. 
charged with blasphemy because the Bible proclaims that there are only two sexes, male and female. Charged with blasphemy in suggesting that we would rather teach our children morality than government institutions. We could be charged with breaking the cord of public opinion by not taking our kids to swim or soccer, baseball or softball or football or track or basketball on Sunday morning. It's possible that we could be charged with breaking the law of man in order to obey the law of God as we gather for worship on the Lord's Day. We might be subject to character assassination, secret investigations or instigations of crowds and false witnesses. We, we might be subject to an unjust court system, like Stephen. We can spend a lot of time worrying about facing a conflict like Stephen. We could spend a lot of time worrying about being canceled like Stephen. Or we could spend our time serving like Stephen, soaking in God's word like Stephen, and speaking about Jesus like Stephen. Brothers and sisters, there are so many avenues and opportunities for fear before us. But fear of being canceled was not what was on the face of Stephen. Faith was on Stephen's face. Stephen's countenance was marked with peace, contentment, and confidence in God. Let's read this in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, as we consider our third and final point. Stephen's countenance. Acts chapter 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The council looked at Stephen intently, probably even with anger and daggers in their eyes. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said this of Stephen, His holy and glad heart beamed forth in his countenance. A flash of coming glory lit up his face, and even his foes were forced to see it. Yet neither this sight nor his eloquent address could touch their cruel hearts, for they thirsted for his blood and would have it. Notice that the council was sitting. They're sitting in judgment on Stephen. But Stephen knew who was really on the throne that day. Christian, you need to remember who is on the throne every day. Stephen was unmoved. He was fearless. And as a pastor, I look at a passage like this and I ask myself, how do I raise up a Christian like Stephen? Right? How do, how do we raise up disciples who will live like this? Confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and unmoved, uncowed by opposition and anger. It's a question that you ought to be asking yourself. How do I grow into being a Christian like Stephen? With the Old Testament at his fingertips. You're going to see that if you keep reading through chapter 7 of Acts. How does he know the Bible so well? How, how do I go, how do I grow into being a Christian who is ready to go and serve in a way that will provoke my neighbors into thinking he's not normal, she's not normal, there's something different about them, weirdly interesting even. How do I grow into a Christian whose service will lead others to ask great questions? Questions like, why are you always serving your church family? Why do you as a young man go and visit the elderly? Why do you take them to their doctor's appointments or collect their medicine or, or have a picnic with them in the park? Why do, why do you do something like that? Uh, um, how do you grow 
into a Christian who serves like Stephen. Uh, a, a pastor from Canada by the name of William Hughes uh, pointed out the answer. I, it was a brilliant answer. He said that the answer comes from the first half of Acts chapter 6. How do you grow a Christian like Stephen? Well, it's really the first half of Acts chapter 6. Right? Stephen was a Christian, a member of the church in Jerusalem. He was part of a church that prioritized preaching and praying. He was part of a church that urged members to meet each other's needs. Knowing that no form of service was too low. That's how Stephen became such a Christ-like Christian. He was deeply involved in a local church that had its pastors unapologetically prioritize preaching and praying. Stephen was deeply involved in a local church that encouraged and exhorted members to be devoted to meeting the needs of fellow saints. They were other-oriented. Rather than coming and saying, what, what, do I, what do I get here? Rather turning up and saying, how can I serve like the Lord Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, do these ordinary things that Stephen does attend the means of grace, the preaching of God's word, and serve God's people, and you will grow like Stephen did. Now, you're, you're not going to grow 10 feet immediately. I'll often say that the, um, the Christian life is like watching the, the grass grow, right? If you're just staring at it, you, you, you cut the grass on, on Monday, and you sit down in a chair, and you stare at it day by day by day, you cannot tell that the grass is growing. But if you cut the grass on Monday, and you walk away for a week, you turn up and you look at it and go, well, this, this grass has grown. That, that actually happens a lot in the Christian life. We, we grow over time. We're often not going to be growing. We're trying to look at it and say, oh, this week, is this, is this a place of growth? Or this day, is that? Give yourself to God's word, serving God's people, and you'll grow. This is the, the means that God has ordained for growth into Christ-likeness. So, so wait on tables like Stephen did. We have a, a members meeting. We, we eat together. You see somebody needs a cup of water? Go grab a cup of water for them and bring it to them. Ser serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, visit the elderly and uh, the, the sick. Go in, and be hospitable. Somebody take Dan up on his offer to go have lunch at his house. Um, feed those who eat alone or eat with those who eat alone. Go, go and wash dishes in the kitchen and talk with a fellow believer as you you do go and serve in the nursery take in the word that you're taught each lord's day and share it as you go find one thing in the sermon on monday that you are going to challenge yourself to share with a coworker the next day find one thing in that sermon on sunday and share one thing on monday and and as you go and serve in these various ways serve as one who's spiritually minded ask yourself how does this service point or show the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? How do the, these, these ways in which I'm, I'm serving portray the Lord Jesus? Serve humbly like Jesus did. Don't just serve, but do it spiritually. Prioritize serving God's people. You know, if you, if you set aside serving God's people, then I fear that you set aside one of God's primary means for you growing in Christ's likeness. If your life is consumed with self-service or if your schedule is just dominated by service to your family's activities or the world's priorities of wealth, work, luxury, then you may be significantly inhibiting your spiritual growth. Christians grow to be like Stephen, really to be like Jesus, 
by investing in the church that proclaims Jesus from the Bible and portrays Jesus in sacrificial service. That's how you grow to be a Christian who has the face of an angel before a council that's filled with anger. Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. And I think Luke is trying to express several things to us through Stephen's countenance. He's he's trying to remind us of Moses' shining face that we read earlier in the service, right? When Moses met with God, he had a shining face. Stephen is clearly a man who has met with God day by day and known God. And here he is. Isn't it ironic again? Interesting that Stephen is visibly portraying Moses, the one whom they say he opposes and speaks against. Moses knew God. Stephen knew God. Do you know God? Another thing that Luke is trying to communicate to us through Stephen's countenance is that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you you remember when Jesus shone in heavenly wonder and glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17? Stephen's face reminds us that he's placing all of his hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And another thing that I think we need to recognize about Stephen that Luke is trying to communicate is that Stephen's countenance, it reveals that he is conscious and aware that he has God the Father's approval. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43, Jesus, he explains his parable. He's told, he explains his parable of the weeds. And he explained that on the last day, on the day of judgment, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus explained that the wicked will face the fiery furnace. But then he said that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Stephen's shining face reveals to us that he knows he has his father's approval and that he is bound for the promised land. On this day, that the council sits in judgment on him. He knows God's verdict on the last day. That's a verdict that's already been cast and passed. And his future glory is certain. And his face shows it on that very day. And as we conclude, I want to encourage us to set our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ just as Stephen did. Stephen's countenance revealed that he was content to share in the sufferings of Christ. For Stephen, it was nothing for him to risk being canceled for Jesus. It was nothing for Stephen to serve Jesus unto death because Jesus had served Stephen unto death. Brothers and sisters, let us constantly look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us remember that for the joy set before him, the joy of honoring his Father in heaven, the joy of saving our souls and ensuring our glory, He endured the cross. Jesus despised the cross's shame by getting up from the dead. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't worry about the courts of men who may be seated in judgment upon you and threaten to cancel you. Jesus is on the supreme throne. Serve like Jesus. Speak about Jesus and your countenance in the eyes of the world who is threatening to cancel you, it will shine like the Lord Jesus in glory. Let's pray together.